God is so good. If you're not going to buy into the system, you're gone. And New England doesn't care. I don't think you can build around Mellow. This might be the most poorly enforced rule in all of sports. There's just something to keep in mind that those people aren't off limits to pray for. Alright, welcome to episode 3 of the Jesus Love Sports podcast. I'm Luke Heaton. Lord, thank you for waking us up today and giving us an opportunity to experience you. Thank you for everything that you've blessed us with and all your beauty that we so often take for granted. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, I'm excited for this podcast. We have a we have a lot of cool things to talk about. I'm going to start with uh, a little message on the love of God, and then talk some Super Bowl, and then discuss the current drama with the New York Knicks, and then end with some baseball talk. There's some interesting things that may be happening in the world of baseball that I'd like to bring up. All right, let's start with a little message. So, the love of God. First, like, the love of God is so important to understand for both believers and non-believers because it's truly amazing once you understand it. So, first of all, God is most importantly love. God doesn't just have a quality that is love. God God himself is love. 1 John 4.8 says, yes, 1 John 4.8 says, Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. And then 1 John 4.16 says, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. So it's important to understand that God himself is love. That's just not a quality of him. Like the fully, like God himself is love. And I can't say, I'm, I'm, I'm repeating that a lot, but it's so important because it's really amazing once you can grasp that God loves us so much because his very nature is love. So that's something I wanted to cover. Um, and the next thing is God created us. Like we are here on this earth because of God's love. He created us out of love. He wanted someone and something to pour out his love. And now, some reasons that people bring up, oh, he created us because he may have been lonely. Genesis one twenty six says, let us make man in our, in our image. Us in our is referring to the Trinity. God wasn't lonely. He had the Holy Spirit and he had Jesus. He was not lonely because he was with the Trinity. Let us make man in our own image. God also didn't need us. God didn't create us because he had a need for us. Acts 17, 24-25 says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. So God didn't create us because he needed us. God desired to pour out his love and let us experience his excellence, experience his fullness. It's crazy to think that God loved us before he even created us. 
God has loved us for eternity. Now, it's hard for humans to comprehend eternity and God living outside of time. Like humans view time is linear for us. God is outside of time. God is seeing everything that's ever happened that will happen at the same time. So God loved us before we were even created, which is amazing to think. God loved us before we were born or when we were in our mother's womb. God, God loves us. God is love. He created us because He wants us to experience Him, and that's how loving He is. He didn't create us out of need. He didn't create us because He was lonely. He created us to allow us to experience His love that He desperately wanted to pour out to us. And that brings me to another verse. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Think about that. God loves us so much that He was willing to let His Son die so that we could be with Him. That's amazing. That leads me to to go off on a little tangent. A lot of people, a lot of there's many people in this world that go, claim the argument: How can God be good if there's evil in the world? God, first of all, okay, the evil is not a result from God. And God's, God's just not letting it happen. First of all, God didn't intend for this world to be evil. When God created Adam and Eve, there was no sin. There was perfection. Adam and Eve were living with God. It wasn't until Satan showed up and tempted Adam and Eve to disobey God that sin, sin entered the world. See, God is perfect, and if God's perfect, He can't be around imperfection, because that would taint His perfection. So as soon as sin entered the world, God had to distance Himself. And that's why people started making sacrifices in the Old Testament. They were sacrificing animals with no blemishes after they would confess their sin. Jesus is that final sacrifice. Now, when God looks at us, He sees the covering of Jesus. And that allows us to live with God for eternity because He doesn't look at us and see the sin. He looks at us and sees the perfection of Jesus. So now we can be with God who is perfect because we have Jesus' perfect covering over us. So when people say this world is, how can God be good if this world's evil? God's done everything. God's already defeated evil. He's already defeated death. God sent His own Son so that we, if, if we believe, we can escape this world of pain and suffering and live in perfection with Him where there's no pain, there's no suffering. God isn't this distant God who's in His own spiritual world just looking down on us and doing nothing. God Himself, think about this, God Himself in human form came to earth. God came to earth as a way for us to be able to live with Him. Other religions, their gods are so distant. And their people who believe in that God, like Islam, have to do works 
Mormonism have to do works to be with God. We don't have to do that. We just have to believe. God gave us a free gift. God is so good. God came to the earth so that we could be with Him forever. So there's no way you can say God isn't good. It's humans and Satan that are causing this evil. Satan's that ca- that's causing the evil, and he's using humans to carry it out. God didn't, ab- and God didn't hasn't abandoned us. God has done the exact opposite. Like I said, coming to us, God came to us and offered us a free gift, and that it still offers us that free gift until Jesus comes back. So yes, there this world has evil in it. God has already defeated that evil. God did the exact opposite from abandoning abandoning us because God is good, because God is love. And this world is temporary. Humans, their real home is in heaven. 1 Timothy 2, 3-4 says, This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God desperately wants every single human to be saved and accept his free gift that is Jesus, our Savior, so he can live with us for eternity in heaven. God is so good and God is love. And that cannot be denied. God has made himself near to us. God has come to us. God has shown himself. God has already done everything We just have to believe. So just going into the next few days, just think about God's love and where it makes itself most noticeable in your life. And also think about the things that we take for granted that show God's beauty and God's love. God's love is everywhere. And myself included, we kind of close our eyes to some, some things that are right in front of us that are perfect displays of God's love. So just... Next few days, this next week, just remind yourself of how expansive and how overwhelmingly beautiful the love of God is. All right, well, that brings me to some Super Bowl talk. My goodness, is this Super Bowl not the perfect addition to the last calendar year of sports? I mean, seriously, last second of the college football playoff title game, game game-winning touchdown, buzzer beater in the NCAA tournament. World Series goes to extra innings in Game 7. NBA Finals goes to Game 7. Now the Super Bowl goes to its first overtime in Super Bowl history. I mean, seriously, us sports fans, can we ask for anything more? It's just, it's just amazing. The year of sports we had, we love competition. And I love it. That's why I was so worried in the first half when Atlanta was up big. I was really worried, man, am I going to sit here for three and a half or four hours and watch an uncompetitive game? Can something please happen where it's going to be exciting to watch? Now I knew in the back of my mind, I just had a feeling that New England was going to do something to make it interesting. I wasn't necessarily sure they were going to win, but I didn't think it was going to be a blowout for the whole game. I thought they were going to have some sort of comeback. Anyway, I think teams are 0-93 after trailing by 19 after the third quarter. 
that, nothing that does nothing to stop Brady and the Patriots. I think Brady's largest comeback before this was twenty four points. Now is twenty five with the Super Bowl win. It's just amazing. This game was so good, and I was on the edge. The, the ending made up for the poor, poorly competitive, the uncompetitive first half. So thank you, Patriots. Also, we can definitely thank the Falcons. I'll get to that in a second. Anyway, Colin Coward had a good take on New England. He was talking about how this their system continues to dominate. If you think about it, New England is a machine. They use slightly above average players who are unselfish, who buy into the team, and that's what makes them that's what allows them to dominate. I mean, James White played a lesser role in high school. In high school he was being unselfish. If he's like New England uses unselfish, slightly above average players. To dominate. Tom Brady was a sixth round pick. Julian Edelman, seventh round. Danny Amendola, undrafted. Chris Hogan, undrafted. Malcolm Mitchell, fourth round. James White, fourth round. They are so unselfish and they buy into the genius system that Belichick and the coaches have put into place and they dominate. Now, yes, in the NFL, you have to have at least a, a good quarterback to win games. And New England found the jackpot with Brady. But even without Brady, see, he was suspended for the first four games of the season. They were 3-1 and one without him. Now, yes, it wasn't against the greatest teams like Arizona. But in general, in the NFL, you're playing against other professionals. And any win in the NFL doesn't come that easy. Now, yes, there's, there's some outliers, some amazing teams playing very, very horrible teams. But the Patriots won without Brady. They're 3-1 without him. Proving even more how the, the machine that New England is continues to be the fuel for their dynasty. It's just amazing. And it's like Colin Coward was saying, fans aren't going into games hoping, oh, I hope this one player doesn't get hurt or we have no chance. Like so many teams, so many, so many fans are going, into their, going to watch their teams play. and They're just hoping that one player doesn't get hurt. I, Colin Coward is just it was so funny saying that it's kind of like law and order. New England's like law and order. When a, a guy leaves the show, oh, they bring another one in, and it's just it's the same same show, just as good. Same thing with New England. A guy leaves, they bring in another one. Another slightly unheard of guy dominates. In New England, like I said, it's about players buying in. New England might be the most unselfish team I've ever seen. As soon as a player starts battling with the coaches or starts doing things to disrupt the team, they're gone. Chad Ochocinco wasn't here that long. Jamie Collins midseason was traded to Cleveland after battles with the coaching staff. If you're not going to buy into the system, you're gone. And New England doesn't care because they've, been, they've proven to win season after season. Just great, and then the, another uh, great thing about Belichick, he's just, what a guy. He's a genius, and then he's interviewed after the Super Bowl. He could just be continue celebrating the Super Bowl, and he says they're 
five weeks behind other teams going into next season. He's focused on how they're five weeks behind other teams instead of celebrating the Super Bowl. It's just, New England is such a great system, such a great machine. It's fun to watch. And one more thing on Brady. He just won his fifth ring, passing Terry Bradshaw and Joe Montana, who each had four. So Brady has in most rings as a quarterback. And he won an NFL, NFL record now, his fourth Super Bowl MVP. So Brady, everything he's done has earned him the right to be considered the greatest quarterback of all time. I mean, if you think about it, rings define success. That's what we all use. We use rings to compare players for greatest of all time. I mean, that's why do you think LeBron's ring chasing? LeBron knows that he has, rings is what is going to allow him to be considered the best player of all time. Michael Jordan has six. LeBron has three. LeBron is ring chasing because he knows that's what will set him apart and allow him to be regarded as the best player of all time. So that's just a little side note. Brady, I mean, it's hard to compare this current generation, surgical nature of football now compared to football like it was in the 80s. But still, five rings, that's amazing. Four Super Bowl MVPs. I mean, both records. So Brady easily deserves to be, to be regarded as the best quarterback of all time. Anyway, that's just a side note. Let's break down this game. So Atlanta's going into halftime. They're probably a little shocked. They're up big on the New England Patriots, and Atlanta's been playing well. They've been getting after Brady. Their defense has been ball hawks. Their offense has been rolling. And New England's been playing decent. I mean, New England can't run the ball. They haven't gotten any pressure on Matt Ryan. It doesn't look good for New England. So, I mean, Atlanta's going into halftime thinking, what's going on? Do we have this in the bag? Do we, they have to change up their whole game plan. I mean, you don't practice for this. You don't practice going up big at halftime against New England in the Super Bowl. So, I mean, the biggest thing, the biggest reason they lost is lack of experience. They, uh, New England's been in the playoffs so many times, they, they have experience for something like this. But Atlanta, I mean, you can't, it's hard to game plan for something like this. Here comes a crazy stat. This may sound, this may sound unbelievable, but Peter Schrager reported after the game that after Atlanta went up 28-3 to with eight and a half minutes left in the third quarter, for the rest of the game, they ran the ball five times. Five times. They have two great running backs. They've been running the ball well all game. Now, when you're up big, you don't want to be crazy aggressive. But you don't want to go crazy conservative. There's a balance. Atlanta ran the ball five times with, from eight and a half minutes left in the third quarter to the end of the game. Of course it's going to allow New England to get back in the game. Not running the ball doesn't let time off the clock, and it gives more time to Brady, which leads to your defense being on the field longer. So, I mean, inexperience just tore Atlanta apart. New England ran 93 plays compared to Atlanta's 46. That's not going to win you a game. Yes, Atlanta's defense played amazing in the first half, and... 
a large part of the second. But they were exhausted. Now, side note, it was great watching Atlanta's defense. Dan Quinn, the head coach of Atlanta, was the Seattle defensive coordinator uh, a few seasons ago. And, man, that, that Atlanta defense sure looked a lot like Seattle. They were just ball hawks. They were everywhere. The pass, the pass rush was great. They're all their young studs. They're secondary. They were just swarming to the ball. However, that only lasts so long. New England kept having the football, and Atlanta wasn't keeping the football. They weren't running time off the clock, and it kept playing the defense on, on their heels and on an island. And your defense can only, they, they could only play that well for so long before they get gassed. And they got exhausted. New England just warmed down. It was just, I don't know. Like when Atlanta, near the end of the game, was in field goal rage, and then they got sacked. Matt got sacked, and then there was another holding call. Then on third down, they threw it incomplete, and it was, I think it was third and 33. That's a time where you run the ball. You keep time, you keep the time running, and you stay in field goal range, and you get points. Now, I don't know if the coaches were getting psyched out by not trying to be conservative and trying to remain aggressive. Yes, you want to remain aggressive to an extent, but also while time is running off the clock. And New England kept getting the ball with time, and after a while, Brady's going to get in his rhythm. And that rhythm was a thing of beauty. Down 16, two-point conversion. You had to get two two-point conversions. That is so hard, especially after you have to get two in the Super Bowl. I don't know. Brady, when Brady gets on his rhythm, it's hard to stop him, especially when Atlanta's defense is so gassed. So, I mean, that's what beat the Falcons. They went up. They had to go to it. They didn't know what game plan to use. They don't, you don't practice for going up 28-3 against New England in the Super Bowl. So, I mean, it's... You can yeah, I want to have a little bit of you want to give a little bit of leeway to the coaching staff of Atlanta, I guess, because lack of experience. I mean, but give it to New England. They took what they got. They their defense did enough to get stops. Give their ball to New, to Brady. I mean, you give Brady enough plays, he's gonna do something. So I mean, I mean, it was a great game. Uh, I just, I mean, I feel bad for Atlanta. They had it. They just had to be smart. They had to just be in between of conservative and aggressive. And I know it's a fine line. It's easy for me to say. I wasn't there. And it's so easy to look to look back on this game and, oh, they should have done this, this, and this, and in the moment it's hard. I mean, but still, there was definitely some certain plays even – Normal fans can point back to and say, "Man, why didn't they run the ball there? Why didn't they do? Why didn't they do this? Why didn't they do that?" Anyway, what a game! A lot of people are saying this is the best Super Bowl ever. This is this is not not the best Super Bowl ever at all. The greatest ending to a Super Bowl, yes. But the greatest when you look and talk about the greatest game ever, you think about a game that's back and forth the whole game. It's competitive the whole game. This Super Bowl was not the first half. It wasn't even close. It was uncompetitive. It was 
exciting at first, seeing Atlanta go up, and then it just kind of got boring. Now, yes, the ending made up for it, but not the best game ever. You could definitely argue the best finish of a game ever. So I'll just say that. But looking back, Atlanta's defense got tired. New England ran way more plays than Atlanta. And Brady came in clutch. Give him enough plays. Have him playing against a tired defense. No matter how good they are, no matter how well they're coached, you can't count Brady out. So that's some Super Bowl talk. Now, I do want to move on to some New York Knicks. There is quite some drama brewing in New York. All right, where do I even start with the Knicks? All right, we'll start with Melo. So, first of all, Carmelo Anthony, has on his contract, he has a no-trade clause, which, to be eligible for a no-trade clause, which, I mean, no-trade clause, you can... Basically, you can turn down any trade that your GM or president wants to make. You have full control if you're traded or not. You're eligible for that after being in the, year, the league for eight years, plus being with that team who you have the contract with for four years. And I think the only two other players in the league with a no-trade clause are Dirk and LeBron. So also on Melo's contract... He has a 15% trade kick, which if he's traded, this, his salary increases by 15%. And Melo also has two years left on his contract after this season. He signed a five-year, $124 million contract in 2014. I mean, props to his agent, Leon Rose. I mean, he sure got the best of Phil Jackson when they signed this deal. I mean, seriously, like, I don't see why giving Melo a no-trade clause does anything positive. Uh, somehow, Melo and his agent were making certain threats, or Leon Rose is just the most persuasive guy in the world, but Melo got a dream contract. Anyway, Carmelo Anthony, Carmelo Anthony is not working out for New York. In every season, it seems like they want to try to get rid of Melo. But Phil Jackson's actually actually making a really strong push. Now, Phil Jackson's been publicly making slight hits at Carmelo, publicly saying bad things about him, has a bad player, selfish, saying he's not going to change. Charles Barkley had a good take saying that the only reason Phil's doing this is to try to frustrate Melo so he'll accept the trade. That's the only plausible reason why a president of a team would be saying this many horrible things about one of your players. And also, I mean, yes, Phil Jackson, if this is his reasoning behind saying, going public and treating your players, one of your players terribly, I mean, if that's your reasoning, if it works out, great, if Carmelo accepts a trade. But also, I mean, you're turning... So many possible free agents in the future from New York. I mean, not that New York looks great already, but you're making New York seem like an even worse destination than it already is. I mean, Phil Jackson wants to get rid of Mel. He wants to build around Chris Tapps Porzingis, who's a good player. And But Chris Tapps has come out and said he wants Mel to stay. New York is just its a big bowl of drama right now. Now, 
let's talk about Carmelo for a second. Can you build around Carmelo? 538.com says yes. Now, Melo's his career average, average 24.8 points, 6.6 rebounds, 3.1 assists. 538.com did, wrote an article like comparing 20 former players with similar playing style to Carmelo, such as Vince Carter, Mark Aguirre. And they found that when you surrounded these players with shooters who could defend and rebounders, and if the good player bought in, the team was good. They advanced decently far in the playoffs. But without those pieces, that offensive-minded player who plays no defense and doesn't rebound very well, which is Mello, team doesn't make the playoffs or they get outed in the first round. I don't think you can build around Mello. Now, I'm not defending what Phil Jackson's doing, but Mello has been in the, in the league long enough for you to know what, who he is. George Carl says in his book, Furious George, Melo's the best offensive player he ever coached, but plays no defense. Melo hated when having to share the spotlight. I mean, it's hard not to argue against that. Even when Jeremy Lin, a few seasons ago, went off for a few weeks for a short term in New York, Melo didn't like that. Melo hates when the spotlight's not on him. I mean, it's hard to build a... I mean, yes, Mello, Carmelo is a great offensive player. Now, he's, he's not as good as he once was. But he's still a very, very good scorer. But he plays no defense. He doesn't rebound. He's always been accused of being a ball hog. You can't build around a player that doesn't buy into the team and, and buy into sharing any part of the spotlight with your teammates. So, I mean... Yes, like I said, he's a good player, but I don't. You I mean you can't, you can't build around Carmelo Anthony. He's had too many years. I mean, he's had good players around him. He's had good teams. I mean, Carmelo, ESPN reported. Carmelo has the worst winning percentage for any player in NBA history with at least fifty playoff games. Anthony's playoff teams have a sixteen and thirty-six record. Now, that's, I mean, that's awful. Yes, Carmelo's been to one conference finals. He went in 0-9 with the Nuggets. They lost to L.A. in the Western Conference Finals. But Carmelo, I mean, he doesn't, he's not a team, he's not a player to build around. He does, he's, you just look at history, look at his time in the league. I mean, players are fooling themselves because, and fans are fooling themselves because now the NBA has transformed in the past few seasons, past few years, that in order to win rings, you have to have multiple superstars. Or until LeBron retires, if you're, if you're in the East. If you're in the East, you're not going to win a ring until LeBron, LeBron retires. It's just a fact. LeBron's been going to the finals year after year after year after year. So, I mean, fans are brainwashed themselves because they look at Melo, and he's he, superstar. You could go either way now. He's historically been a superstar. And they see the word superstar. Oh, yes, yes, we have that one superstar we need. But now you need multiple superstars, and Melo's not the superstar he once was, and he doesn't play defense, he doesn't rebound, he's a good scorer. That's all he does. So, Melo... I don't think you can't be built around. Now, 
let's talk some trades regarding Melo. A lot of people like the, the Melo for Blake trade has been kind of circulating. Now, Phil Jackson, if Melo's traded, I mean, he's going to, he just wants Melo out. He's going to get next to nothing. Phil is willing to do that. But the Melo for Blake trade has been circulating. The Clips, so the Clippers would get a wing score in Melo. And interesting about Blake, the Clippers are better without him. Blake just clogs the middle. The Clippers need a, a scoring threat from the perimeter. They have Redick. He just shoots, though. Like, they need an attacking overall score from the, from the wing. Blake, they win more games without Blake. Blake just clogs the middle and takes, takes up room where Paul and DeAndre Jordan can go to work. So the Clippers could benefit from getting Melo. The Knicks would get rid of Melo and get Blake, who may need a fresh start in a new place. I mean, New York needs New York needs quite a few pieces. They, I mean, this draft coming up, if they get a good young point guard, the New York could definitely benefit from a good young point guard, which this draft is full of. Honestly, I mean, Phil just wants to get rid of Melo. So this just Blake for Melo trade kind of looks realistic. I mean, Blake's career average is 20, or Blake's averaging 21.6 points a game, 8.8 rebounds. I don't know. Clippers could benefit, maybe not New York. Anyway, that's just a trade that's been kind of talked about lately. So, and if things couldn't get any worse for New York, a non-basketball issue is the last thing you want. So, James Dolan, the owner of the New York Knicks, is widely regarded as the worst owner in, in sports, in all of sports currently. He's made horrible, horrible changes within the front office with coaches, getting rid of players. Phil Jackson. Phil Jackson's looking like he's not going to pan out. It looks like Melo and Phil are both going to be gone. Anyway, so in a recent game, Charles Oakley, former great Nick, the, the New York fans love Charles Oakley. That generation in the 80s, basketball of just... Every team had that one hard-nosed big guy. Didn't score a lot of points, but he was that one enforcer. The Knicks had multiple of them, but Charles Oakley was that guy. So Charles Oakley and James Dolan have do not like each other. Oakley has publicly criticized the Knicks and Dolan. So Oakley was at the game, and there's reports that Oakley was he was sitting right behind Dolan in like the third row. So there's reports that Oakley was yelling things at Dolan. Anyway, security came over and asked him to leave, and Charles Oakley felt like it was unfair. Eventually, Charles Oakley turned physical and started shoving the security guard. He poked a guy in the face, and then eventually like 10 guys had to pull him out. Oakley was charged with three counts of assault. Dolan has banned him from Madison Square Garden. This is all happening in the middle of the game on a nationally televised game. I mean, New York is just a mess right now. So, I mean, like I said, if things couldn't get any worse, well, they did. Now, New York's been backing Charles Oakley. They were chanting, we want Oakley, when Mello was at the free throw line uh, in a recent game. Colin Coward had a good take on Charles Oakley, saying that he wants to be treated like a Charles Barkley. He wants to be treated like the all-star, great generational player that he 
that New York fans think he is, but in reality, he's not. He averages 10 and 10. That's career average, 10 points, 10 rebounds. He, besides New York fans, like no one really knows. I mean, besides really, really strong basketball fans, Charles, Charles Oakley isn't necessarily a guy that is loved outside of New York. And Oakley has a history of violence. I mean, he bit a cop in Vegas. So the kind of, the kind of, like, New York fans backing him is not surprising, but it's not necessarily fair. Now, this doesn't, this I'm not saying, Colin Coward was saying he wasn't backing, he wasn't supporting James Dolan, but he was not supporting Oakley as well. I mean, it's just a mess. Oakley is a violent person. He has a violent history. He comes into Madison Square Garden, has a bad history with James Dolan, a physical altercation in the middle of the game. Now he's banned. Anyway, New York, New York, New York. Nothing, nothing good is happening. Nothing. Seen, it doesn't seem like anything's going to get better. Uh, I want to turn this to a, a little spiritual standpoint. This is kind of a quick turnaround, but I think it's important to take note of. So, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2 says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Now, basically this is saying, pray for your authority. Yes, we love to pray for our family, love to pray for our friends. How often do we pray for authority? We want, we, we forget about them sometimes. Like, do we pray for our professors? Do we pray for our teachers? Do we pray for our bosses? Hebrews, the end of Hebrews has a great verse saying that why there's no benefit to you if you are making the job of your authority a burden. Now, this is not saying to be submissive to every type of authority because there's, there's poor authority. Of course there is. But at the same time, pray for them. Like for the next verse in First Timothy talks about God wants everyone to be saved. So for Knicks fans, pray for James Dolan. Pray for his salvation. Pray for his heart. Pray for Charles Oakley. This is just something to keep in mind that those people aren't off limits to pray for. Pray for your favorite player. Pray for when a, your favorite player gets injured. Pray for their injury. Pray for your least favorite player. I mean, these people aren't... It's, it's weird to think about this because they seem so distant from us and have nothing to do with us. But we're all God's creation and God wants every single one of us to be with Him for eternity in heaven. So it's just something to keep in mind. Pray for your authority. Pray for everyone around you, despite if you know them personally or not. Because God loves us all, and He wants all of us to be with Him in heaven, united. So that's just a, a point I wanted to bring up. Anyway, my last topic of the podcast is some baseball Baseball, baseball. There's some interesting things going on. So, 
Major League Baseball is testing, they're eyeing rules for pace of play. They're testing in minor leagues this summer, starting extra innings with runners on second. They're eyeing raising the strike zone to the top of the knee compared to the bottom of the knee, and they're eyeing lowering the four required pitches for an intentional walk. Now, pace of play has been an issue in the past few years for baseball. Uh, MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred has they they're wanting to make baseball more enjoyable for fans who uh, a common thing in baseball is games are too long fans aren't connected with the game they're getting disconnected um, right now the average MLB game is just under three hours compared to the NBA's 40 minutes shorter the Super Bowl was four hours no one had a problem watching that this relates to, I've been saying Colin Coward's name all podcasts, but uh, I was recently listening to his show and he was talking about similar points. He was saying the problem with baseball isn't the pace of play, but it's lacking action and excitement. So, I mean, I agree. I mean, why do you, why do you, think, why do you think kids, why do kids quit baseball when they're young? They don't come home and say, oh, you know, dad, the mom, dad, the game was just too long. I think I'm done with baseball. No, they come home and say, mom, dad, I'm bored. I want to play a different sport. Baseball's problem needs to be making it more exciting, which translates in baseball to more runs, more hits. So don't add rules that, com- that make the game look so different. I mean, you start a runner on second in extra innings, first batter comes up, bunts, Advances the run into third, next batter, sack fly, and they score. I mean, that's no fun. Keep the game interesting. When it's extra innings, you want the game to be real. You don't want to add, add a rule that drastically changes it. Now, according to SportingCharts.com, the number of runs per game in Major League Baseball has been on de- a decline since 2000, from 10.2 runs per game to 8.2. Now... Pitchers are getting better. Even if the MLB wanted to raise a strike zone, the MLB, the Major League Baseball Players Association, most likely wouldn't approve that because of pitchers. MLBPA has to approve a rule change. And the possibility, the eyeing the change to the rule of not requiring four balls, four pitches to intentionally walk someone. I mean, SportingNews.com was writing that ESPN notes that pitchers issued 932 walks last season, or just one every 5.2 games. So, I mean, how is that going to do anything? That's really going to have a little effect on pace of play. So, like Colin Coward was, t- was saying, we've got to find ways to make the game more exciting, not shorten the game, because there's, I mean, with more commercials, more TV breaks, more pitching changes, it's just going to keep getting longer. So, some, some ways to do that, some ideas floated around are maybe moving the mound back or lowering the pitching mound. Both have been done in the past, and both have worked. For Fox Sports wrote that back in 1893, a five foot, uh, the mound is moved back five feet, which is, it's at the current distance that it's at, and it caused a... Strikeout, the strikeout rate to drop by 
and batting average rose by 25 points. Since then, they, they continue to go on to write, since then pitchers have grown considerably taller, which translates to release points closer to home plate, and the mound hasn't been moved back to compensate. Now, 1893 seems like a long time ago. But if it worked then, it can work now. And, I mean, the article says, like, it hasn't been moved back since 1893, and runs are, have been on decline since 2000. Maybe moving, the mound, maybe moving the mound back would work. I mean, I, I don't know the answer, but that's just a possibility. So, 1968 was, 1968 is known as the year of the pitcher. And in 1960, because the ERA was 2.98. Today, last season, 2016, was 4.18. Pitchers were just dominant. In 1969, as a result from that, they moved the mound down from 15 inches to 10 inches. And as a result, the ERA, the ERA increased. I mean, it worked. So the MLB has had has, has a history of doing things to make the game more exciting, to help the batter, to help score more runs, keep people more interested. I mean, let's be honest. People like scoring. People like points. The Super Bowl was four hours long, and people, no one wanted to leave watching that game. Average MLB game is three hours, and the MLB is struggling with the problem to keep people into baseball. So, I mean, I agree. The, not, the problem isn't wholeheartedly the game's too long. It's the game, no one wants to watch a three-hour game where it's one to zero. People want to see 8-6, 10-8. People want to see runs. People want to see hits, home runs. People want to see base runners. And first, also, random point, the MLB already has a rule that's not being enforced that can easily, easily help with pace of play. There's a rule in the MLB that says when the bases are empty, the pitcher has 12 seconds in between pitches to pitch the ball. And if it goes longer than 12 seconds, the umpire should call a ball. Now, I've never seen this called. This might be the most poorly enforced rule in all of sports. I mean, USA Today reported that in 2014, the average time in between pitches was 23 seconds. Now, for those of you thinking, oh, well, uh, this is just a little small thing, seconds add up. And why not just try to enforce this rule before trying to identify other ways of improving pace of play. So MLB, Rob Manfred needs to shift his focus from pace of play, which there's already a rule that, should be, that can be enforced to help with pace of play, to making the game more exciting to help batters out. Find a way to create more hits and more runs in baseball. And that might, I mean, that might be your answer to keeping fans involved in the game. So that's what I have for baseball. That finishes the podcast. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Luke Heaton. And as always, how did you make a difference today? God is so good. If you're not going to buy into the system, you're gone. And New England doesn't care. I don't think you can build around Mellow. 
This might be the most poorly enforced rule in all of sports. This is just something to keep in mind that those people aren't off limits to pray for.